to Liberty Unlocked. I'm your host, Don Watkins. One of my core beliefs is that our model of persuasion is fundamentally flawed. Like we often talk about changing people's minds, but one of the most important facts about human beings is that we have sovereign control over our own minds. No one can make us think. And that is not something to take lightly. Respecting the problem of persuasion means respecting the fact that people are free agents, we're free agents. On the other hand, we also know that it's possible to have an influence on other people's thinking. And the purpose of this show, as I see it, is to explore how it is that free agents actually change their fundamental beliefs about freedom and what we can do in order to encourage more people to go on that journey. Which leads me to today's guest, Gina Gorlin. Gina is a wickedly smart, licensed clinical psychologist who runs a blog called The Psychology of Self-Change. In the conversation, we go deep into how psychologists help people undergo fundamental change. We talk about the role of empathy and techniques for helping someone grasp the need to change. We also discuss the fact that people see themselves as choosing between two political parties and why it's vital to reframe the choice so that people think about what the right political principles are. A last note. We had a few interruptions. One was technical. The other was a surprise appearance by Gina's adorable baby. And I thought it might be interesting to share my thinking behind not trying to edit out these sorts of things. So a lot of communication advice teaches you how to come off as an expert or authority, as polished, professional. And this puts just a lot of pressure on people. Like, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I lose my train of thought? What if someone asks me a question I can't answer? What if a baby pops by while I'm doing an interview? But here's the reality. Two of your strongest persuasion assets are honesty and relatability. So this is a lesson I definitely learned the hard way, so I'll just tell a quick and embarrassing story. Um, I didn't really start studying economics in depth until the uh, 2008 financial crisis. But somehow, I ended up getting booked to do a radio interview, I think in October of 2008, where I was supposed to explain the cause of the crisis. And I mean, this was just, this was something I had no business at all discussing publicly. So I started out repeating probably what I had heard some smart free market people say, and probably in a way that was not very clear. And then the host went on to ask, you know, some pretty sensible follow-up questions. And of course, I had no clue how to answer. But I definitely did give answers. And uh, I can't even imagine what it is I said, but I remember just being aware that like I knew I was bullshitting, the host knew I was bullshitting, the audience knew I was bullshitting, and the only thing I wanted was for the interview to end so I could hide under my desk for a year. Now that's an extreme case because, I mean, I should have never even taken that interview, but imagine if I had just said, well, look, people are blaming the crisis and the free market, and I have no clue exactly what happened, but the one thing I can say is that like we had nowhere near a free market. You know, there was Wall Street is heavily regulated. The whole banking system is controlled by the Federal Reserve. Real estate is heavily regulated. Um, like maybe the host says, why did I book this guy in the show? But I can definitely guarantee that A, I mean, it would have felt better. And B, I would have at least had a shot of persuading the audience of something. 
here's one more example that's maybe more helpful because it's more common than that nightmare. Uh, sometimes in interviews, I would lose, and even to this day, uh, still do lose my train of thought. And I did what a lot of people do in that situation, which is I kept talking until I found it. But I remember a long time ago watching my mentor, Alex Epstein, in an interview, stop in the middle of a sentence and say, sorry, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Or something like that. And I was like, you can do that? But it was just so authentic and relatable and so much more effective. Because instead of like imposing his confusion in the audience, he was able to pause and reconstruct the point he was making and get back to offering up clarifying statements. So what you owe an audience is to be prepared and thoughtful, but instead of trying to live up to some impossible image, what you should really be striving for is to be yourself. And that might sound obvious or even trite, but actually it's a really hard thing to do, to be in front of a crowd and come across the same way you would if you were just talking one-on-one -on -one to somebody in your living room. But if you can achieve that, it's more honest, more enjoyable, more relatable, and ultimately, I would say, more persuasive. Now, full disclosure, I do some editing on these shows, but I never try to edit out reality or create a phony sense of perfection. So hopefully you enjoy that, and hopefully you found this interesting. Okay, last thing before we get to the interview. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is sign up for my newsletter and free Persuasion Bootcamp email course at donswriting.com. And you can support the show financially by clicking the anchor link in the show notes. Every dollar goes to improving the show and helping us reach as many people as possible. Now, on to the conversation with Gina Gorlin. Well, thanks for being here, Gina. Um, My pleasure. <laughs> yeah, so like I've, I, a lot of the people I'm going to be talking to are people who started out as opposed to liberty in one way or another and then had this gigantic transformation in their thinking. Now, I think you and me are more on in the same boat, which is we both got interested in philosophy very young. Yeah, I was like babies. 14, <laughs> maybe 15. I was around the same age. And we both yeah. got interested specifically in Ayn Rand's ideas very young. And so I don't know, maybe you can tell me, uh, were you politically aware before you were interested in Ayn Rand? Was I politically aware? I did have a stretch of interest. I think I... I don't know that I would have even fallen into a given political camp at that point. I was really interested in certain aspects of like 20th century history. I had this amazing history teacher in eighth grade who took us through a bunch of different utopian developments in the 20th century so from the you know, Soviet Union experiment, and which was part of my background. So I was really curious about it to like little utopian communities that had sprung up in the U.S. and like kibbutzim in Israel and and he took us through some of the thematic threads across a bunch of these different projects. And I remember noticing and already being kind of sensitized to this idea that there's something about like communism, something about this, like for, you know, to, for the need of all or whatever, to each according to his, I don't even remember the slogan anywhere to, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, that, that there's something fishy about that. But I didn't necessarily know what the alternative would be or, or how to think about it. So, well, you're better so than I was. I was Cause yeah. when I was 13, I remember sitting down, it just occurred to me now. I remember sitting down 
And I decided to plan out, well, what would the perfect society be like? And so I was like, well, clearly money doesn't make any sense. We need to get rid of money. I mean, it was basically <laughs> Step one. communism without the, you know, the, the insight. It was uh, a complete That's awesome. Fiasco. I mean, as a first attempt, you know, it's not bad. Then you keep drafting and, you know, but I also, I mean, there was this great, lesson that I learned in sixth grade from my English teacher who for some reason decided to teach us this moral about the Robin Hood archetype. So we had read a story that was actually a Chinese version of the Robin Hood tale. And we came to class the next day after reading the story. And in the beginning of the class, she was just doing her administrative overview of here's stuff that we need to think about as a class. And she mentioned that parent-teacher conferences were coming up. And just incidentally, she just threw out there that you guys are kind of all over the place in your grades in this class right now. Like some of you, a few of you have A's and are doing really well, but then a bunch of you are kind of lagging behind with like C minuses and even some D's. That's going to look bad when the parents come. So I'm going to make a deal with you guys and we're just going to cut it down the middle. We're just going to go ahead and like take from some of the A's and like bump up some of the D's. And of course I was already the black sheep of this class. So I didn't have much to lose socially. So of the kids who were privately like cursing her out and thinking, Oh God, really? You're just going to downgrade me to a C. I of course speak up and protest immediately and earn even more wrath from the other side of the class. But she kind of debates me on it and decides, okay, okay, you know what? Fine. I'll take, I'll take your arguments under advisement. And then we go on to talk about the story. And I remember something clicking in my head at that moment. And she was kind of a trickstery teacher anyway. So I was on the lookout for what is she trying to do here? And something connected. And I didn't know the word communism or socialism or that. I was definitely not thinking politically, but I just remember something clicking in my mind. And, oh, wait, um, she, that was a lesson in there somewhere. And I realized the connection to the Robin Hood tale and realized, you know, and I was attuned to it two years later in eighth grade when we were learning about utopias, which were really dystopias. So the dominoes and, fell. And then you read Ayn Rand when? So that was in ninth grade, although in eighth grade, I read Anthem, which was actually assigned to me as an alternative to The Giver, if you've ever heard, which is a children's book, but we were reading it yeah, as I've part that. of that utopia unit. This was a really neat private school that I got to attend for one year and all the classes were somehow connected. So, so I'd read The Giver a million times. So my teacher gave me Anthem to read as the way she put it was, it's an older and more philosophical version of The Giver. That's how it was pitched to me. So knowing nothing else, I, I mean, it was older. I, it was definitely older. I mean, it is more philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> so those adjectives are true, whether they're otherwise identical, you know, different question. But she, so, but I read it and I remember reading it in one gulp. I guess inhaled it in one evening and it's short. So it's possible to do that with Anthem. And I remember even saying to my dad who had brought it home from the library and I read the back, like the jacket, the little quote about, I am, I think I will, what must I say besides and it gives that little blurb. And I read it and very naively said to my dad, hey, that's my philosophy, not having a clue what I was saying. But I just remember something resonated right away. And then I read it and I thought, wow, that's, that was awesome. And then I assumed that that's the only thing like that. And 
then when I turned in the, our uh, the little exam that she had written for me and this other kid who had read it, she and this other kid had a little exchange about how, yeah, this was the last of Rand's decent works. And then after this, she went crazy and she developed this crazy philosophy of objectivism and just totally went off the deep end after that. And I just remember filing that away as this intriguing claim. And then a year later, I was in high school, I was depressed, I was a loner and didn't know who to be and where to fit in and had my usual, you know, the usual teen angst experience. Mm -hmm. um, and in, during winter break between fall and spring semester, I actually had, I saw a reference to the fountainhead in this book called The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which I don't know, it's like a teen angst, you know, young adult fiction um, book. And I think there's a movie that's not well known that's based on it. But in any case, there's a quote from the fountainhead in The Perks of Being a Wallflower. And that brought to mind again, oh, that was the lady who wrote that really amazing little book. And she was supposed to have gone crazy, which in itself is intriguing. And now there's this nice quote from the fountainhead. So what the, and I was an avid reader, which is I'm sure what saved me and allowed me to get to Rand as, as early as I did. But it's funny that, that it's funny that you had a kind of criticism like spawn you for it because I had something similar, which is the first time I'd heard of her. I got really obsessed when I was young with these books by this guy, Robert Ringer. And it was kind of like this self-help. He had a book called Looking Out for Number One, Million Dollar Habits. And I just remember seeing, he, he, he mentioned Ayn Rand, but in kind of a critical way. Like, oh, uh, somebody happens. I used to be influenced by a little bit, but she was, I mean, essentially, yes, yeah, she went crazy. Um, mm -hmm. And the, it's, it's fascinating to me that it, the negative evaluation was not that meaningful to me, but the Sorry. yep the, hashtag real life, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the yeah the negative evaluation wasn't that meaningful to me, but the idea that this was somebody with interesting ideas was was fascinating. Yeah, that is an interesting parallel that might generalize at least to a subset of us who are perhaps contrarian at heart or just somewhat distrustful of the status quo but yeah it definitely was part of what intrigued me and then I got the fountainhead at the library I was just searching for things to read and it got back on my radar that way and then the rest was history at least personal history <laughs> for me yeah, I fell in love with it do you remember what aspects were most appealing because I mean you know we've discussed politics for years but I don't think that was ever your biggest interest yeah. or passion no not at all so what was from it well, I'm curious, what was it that was most uh, appealing to you? Yeah, so one way that I sometimes tell this story because it's so telling of how I came to the Fountainhead and what what was so striking to me about it was just as I read the first page, so you know it starts with Howard Ork laughed, he stood naked at the, end, at the edge of a cliff. I read that line and assumed just without even a second thought that he was about to jump to his death. Like how, what, other possible way could a scene like that end, right? That starts with a man laughing carefreely at the edge of a cliff. And that was the first of a constant series of surprises that that novel served up for me. And in a way, 
the way I experienced it was, you know, so there's the character of Dominique who has what Rand called a malevolent universe premise. She doesn't think that human civilization is conducive to thriving and greatness. She thinks that you know, the petty conformist type destroys the spirits of those who are actually worth anything. And so she's fighting against the person that she most loves because she thinks he's doomed. Right? And I felt like I took the journey along with her, like the journey to discovering that she's wrong about that and that actually evil is petty and that it is not only possible, but it's the natural course of events you know, for the independent minded, passionate creator to succeed and thrive. Even when it doesn't look that way halfway through the novel or halfway through the journey. No, and I had a I uh, I don't I had a friend who started reading it and halfway through he thought it he threw it across the room because he thought it was the most evil book that he had ever read because here was this hero being punished huh. and he thought it was somebody just writing with pure venom. <laughs> wow, a bit. I don't blame him for thinking that because everything I'd read up to that point, if a hero like that was presented, he ended tragically. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite novels prior to The Fountainhead was Martin Eden, which no one's heard of in America, interestingly. It's a Jack London novel. You've heard of Jack London. Everyone's heard of Jack London. But in the US, nobody has heard. I mean, even every English teacher I've asked, none of them to the last has heard of this novel. In the Soviet Union, it was famous, which is how I knew about it because my immigrant parents told me about this book by, Mark, by Jack London. And it was famous there because he meant for it to be a socialist manifesto, which is really ironic because, and he, Jack London even regretted later, like people are misunderstanding the point of my novel. The point is that this guy, this Martin Eden character who is this individualistic writer, and I think you and I, people who are striving to make it as intellectuals, as creatives, would really relate to this guy because he kind of enters into bourgeois society and is this honest and just really naively virtuous soul. You know, this guy who just really wants to do his best writing and wants people to pay him for it and, and to appreciate him for it. And he's destroyed and crushed. And, you know, so I'm giving it away the way I see this goes, nobody's going to read this book anyway. But I felt so moved by this character and his arc because I felt, because it very much resonated with my worldview at the time and probably just reinforced it even further that I felt like this lonely martyr because I was the nerdy one who always wanted to like, mm -hmm. ask more questions in class and always wanted to keep discussing all the nuances of the book and earning the wrath of all my peers who just wanted to like hurry up and end the discussion so they could like go to Abercrombie and Fitch and put on makeup, which is how I held it stereotypically, not really knowing any of them. But I always felt like there's this choice that one makes in society between happiness, between being this naive or just thoughtlessly conformist, bubbly, and mindless, happy person on the one hand, or like retaining your integrity and your intellect and being always the miserable martyr who's hated and uh, who always has to like 
ruin everyone's fun in effect. Like that's, that Did, was the role that I thought I was carving out for myself. I'm curious if the scene where Rourke, like they see that the, that group of young people drive by uh, one of them is, I think, strumming a ukulele or something. Yep. Did that stand out oh, to yeah. you for, for those who know the Fountainhead? That's uh, a really good question because it stood out to me the last time I reread it much more recently. And I don't actually recall, I remember certain scenes really standing out to me. I don't recall that one standing out. And I think that might've just been because it was so in line with how I understood people to be that I didn't make much of it. I was like, yeah, so they're just like more people. Like what really stood out to me were the ways in which Rourke seemed so different and so unclassifiable, you know, where as the novel progressed, like not only does he not jump off a cliff to kill himself because he's just been expelled, but he's joyful and couldn't possibly be less bothered by the fact that he just got kicked out of school. And throughout the novel, you know, he's this, a, a man who pain only goes down to a certain point for him, even when he's being you know, tormented in the quarry, thinking that he may never find work again or never be able to do what he loves, that even then there's a kind of serenity to him. And, and he's savoring the sunlight through the leaves as he you know, relaxes after a hard day's manual labor. And he just completely confounded my worldview. And yeah. through him and through his arc, I realized maybe I don't have to choose. You know, maybe I can be, maybe I can have this kind of happiness, which is so much more substantive and like noble and just exciting than the kind of brainless Abercrombie and Fitch happiness that I thought. Well, one way I have put it is I say happiness is quiet. Hmm. And it, I don't mean that it's always the kind of solemn <laughs> Rourkeish, sure. you know, characters, um, but that it that compared with the conventional view of like who are the people you associate with happiness, it's usually the quiet, serene people that I, in my experience, have most radiated to me. But you have to be very attentive to it, and yeah. uh, and and often the kind of life of the party. Um, and I'm not even criticizing because there's great people who are that way too, but often it can be a cover. So yeah. that, so then you go, you, you did something that made me very jealous because it's, if I had two lives to live, this was the other one I wanted to live, which is you went into psychology. What, mm -hmm. what about that appealed to you? So I've written so many personal statements answering that question so many different ways. It's like I have to sort through <laughs> all the files now to connect to my original reasons, but I mean, everything I've written about it is true, which is that it's the real life, it's the realization of my ideals, which at one point I thought I could only express through art, through, I had an alternative, you may remember this, would-be career as an opera singer. I wrote stories when I was younger. I had a craving for the creative arts for storytelling for imagining other worlds and other fictional characters who don't exist and i realized that in working with real people and helping them rewrite their story i'm getting i'm getting both the creative gratification which i didn't think i could get outside of like fiction because 
having started out, you know, thinking that the real world was a dismal place, but also the intellectual side, which more and more as I went to college and as I read Brand and and found myself want really thirsty for ideas and for scholarship and really curious about like the research and the science that underpins a lot of our claims about motivation and psychological functioning. And then at the same time feeling if I did too much of that, then I started to thirst for the creative expression of my innermost hopes and dreams. And I realized that, okay, a clinical psychologist actually gets to put these two things together. I get to be really rigorous and think about the underlying science and I get to write peer reviewed journal articles, but also, and fundamentally the point of all that is to then be able to sit in a room with a human being and learn their story inside and out and help them change it, you know, help them rewrite it. And the more I started actually doing that, the more I realized, Oh yeah, like this is the nexus where all my interests and passions connect. Yeah, there's so much about that that I want to explore. Well, let me let me start with this. I think there's a framework that people have for persuasion generally, which is really wrong. And it amounts to the idea of like, I want to change people's minds about their political views. Right. And that is such a wrong framework because it implies that you have some sort of control over others. And so I imagine... Uh, you know, when you're working with clients, it probably does not look something like sitting them down and lecturing at them for 30 minutes or an hour Shockingly and not. then watching them change for the better, which was when I was 15 and imagining like, oh, That's I'll just awesome. tell people the truth and then they will. That's what a lot of people imagine when they think that they want to be psychologists and then they're sorely disappointed like um, in their first class. <laughs> so say a little bit yeah. of just about setting aside kind of political persuasion what yeah. what do you see the your role as in just promoting change generally mm-hmm. within somebody yeah i mean that's the question that's at the heart of all my work i i call my lab the moral philosophical foundations of self change and and it's at the heart of clinical psychology like the question of how do you help people change and so there's so much written about it but fundamentally what it comes down to is harnessing a person's own agency and providing both a mirror that that allows people to actually understand themselves and their own conflicts and their own desires better and more objectively and more holistically than they can do just inside their own minds because partly it's just hard to be objective with ourselves and thoughts are slippery and being in the seat of an observer just affords us so much more like distance and objectivity to be able to even say back to someone what they're saying in a way that helps them understand it better. So A, to hold up a mirror and B, to actually provide them, as I see it, the moral inspiration and guidance to to be a cheerleader and in many cases to offer knowledge for someone's consideration that they didn't already have. That's definitely a huge part of it, but to connect up that knowledge to a person's context, like to the, 
questions that are already burning in their mind and to the problems that they're already grappling with and you know, most of all to what they want right to their values to their goals meet them at that point where they're struggling and arm them like give them tools give them resources that they can choose to pick up or not right and when they do choose to pick them up and to make the best case for those tools and provide whatever relevant information will help them evaluate it but ultimately to empower them to actually decide what to do with those tools and with their own life and i have found that that is much more powerful as an approach than any direct lecture that you might read or any more direct form of persuasion i mean this might go too far in the weeds but i'd like to make it a little bit more concrete into my mind okay, so yeah. maybe tell me if you think you can even give it a worthwhile answer to this but like so imagine i come in with a problem that like you very clearly see oh my gosh i've seen this a thousand times he's making a wrong decision mm -hmm. so it's you yeah. know um like oh i want to get in this day. relationship with somebody that is clearly doomed like they're married you know we're it's whatever yep. the case may be you just see it 100 percent clearly how do All you think about your role in in there is it just yeah hey, i'm just here to help the person get what they want or is it uh, I, i'm curious nope. as, <laughs> yeah, no, this is a great the, the parallel I'm drawing is because I, I, I don't think going around and hounding people, you have the wrong view and I'm going to correct you yeah. is good for any issue. But on the other hand, um, the, 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 you want to be able to help people see, I think, you, I think this is wrong and this is how I think about it and yeah. why I think about it that way. Yeah, I mean, that question is, again, I mean, I don't want to be too meta because I want to, that's a situation that I face every day in my practice where a patient is telling me sometimes with great conviction oh i am so excited about this new relationship i mean just the example you're giving or oh yeah definitely i, I i've decided i'm not going to actually apply for that program after all because i realized that i'm never going to get in because they clearly only want people who have spent 10 years in graduate school and i know this because a friend of mine told me that that's how long he was in graduate school so clearly he got in so i won't and, or anything along that, you know, the continuum. And one view, which some therapists will at least explicitly adopt, is it's their life, it's their choice, and there's no right answer. So if they come to you saying they want help accepting that they'll never get a job, help them accept that they'll never get a job, right? Like the, the client is always right, and they should rule the diagnosis. But no therapist actually, no good therapist actually believes that. And in fact, we have a whole technology of change, something called motivational interviewing, which codifies the thinking of many psychological scholars uh, over many decades on, on how to move somebody through the stages of their own change process in a way that consistently honors their autonomy and the fact that they have to come to it for themselves and on their own terms while also being directive in the sense that you have a goal in mind for them that you think is going to be good for them to adopt and so i could even just show you you know the stages of change model which i think is really good though i think it's missing a few fundamental assumptions where for example i have the assumption that work that some form of work some form of productivity is essential to a, a, a flourishing human life which not all psychologists will necessarily agree with me on. And so what I do, let's say when a patient 
comes and tells me, you know what, I, I want you to help me get disability because I don't think I'm cut out for, you know, or they have these chronic mental health problems. And this is often the case that they just don't believe that they're capable. They just can't cope with the rejection. They just want me to help them get disability. Let's say what I don't do is say that's bullshit. You can find a job. You're able-bodied. You're right. having this coherent conversation with me. Like, what is this crap? Go get a job, because I would not have helped them. They would just leave my office feeling invalidated and go find a psychologist who will help them file for disability, right? But I also don't say, okay, sure, let's do it. What I do is I evaluate where they're at. So I start by just asking them questions as open-endedly you know, as possible to understand okay, how convinced are you and what contrary signals are you already getting given that I believe that in reality there are going to be inevitable signals to, to caution someone about the disastrousness of the of a wrong approach, you know, or same thing mm. in a relationship, you know, like, so how do you feel when your spouse ignores you, insults you, abuses you, and what does that do for your productivity and what does that do for your sense of self-respect and oh that's interesting okay so you're telling me that you on the one hand like you couldn't find anyone better anyway but you're telling me that when you're with friends who don't abuse you and who do respect you you come to life and you actually feel like yourself for the first time and you're saying there are people like that so help me understand like cuz i feel like i'm hearing contradictory things in your story you're telling me that you're happy and resigned in this abusive relationship, but you're also telling me the only time you feel like yourself is when you're with people who aren't abusive to you. And you're telling me that there are such people and that they want to be around you. So what do you make of that? And throughout the process, I empathize like crazy, you know, in the sense that right. I'm their biggest fan. I am their number one advocate. And if, if a patient it's really important in therapy that we like our patients genuinely. Like it's not something that we can really fake and that we basically want the best for them and see them as fundamentally, you know, worthy of our time and attention and of their own time and attention. And if I don't have that level of positive regard for patient, I refer them elsewhere because I can't really help them. But honestly, I've never to this day had to do that. Not once because Maybe it's self-selecting. The people who come to therapy are people who are already willing to be that vulnerable and to, you know, are already questioning their own current ways of behaving enough that they were willing to come and you know, think them through with, with a therapist. But given that I like them, I am able to provide that mirror that I mentioned where fundamentally I'm on their side, whether or not they're on their own side, you know, and that's one way that I think a lot of people are struggling even I mean we're going to talk about freedom I assume like people who feel like they owe something to society or people who feel like who have a lot of guilt voices of you know, like kind of obligation and duty telling them that no you're not allowed to go pursue your dream and you know like leave your family behind your family needs you who needs somebody to just shine a, a light in their faces of like what do you want? It's your life. Like to, to kind of strengthen that voice and that perspective. And I'm probably rambling because this is what I think about all the time. It's like the story of my life. <laughs> yeah, but, no, that's, uh, I mean, that to me, that's a revelation. And I, I think there's so much to be learned 
from that approach. All right, so we had a little technical difficulty, <laughs> Gina, but we are we are back. Um, back in action. So I was, I'm very tempted to delve into what you're talking before. Maybe we'll circle back to it. But uh, so one thing I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, there's um, there's some people, including some psychologists, who will argue that like things like our personality trait, if not determine, like heavily influence our our political views. And so it's, you know, if you're a very orderly person, or I forget the big five trait that's usually called out, like Ocean. you're going to be a, yeah. a conservative. And, you know, if you're more creative, you're going to be a liberal. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's not exactly how I think about it. And I certainly don't think that like our psychology determines our politics, but I definitely think they're not, too, they're not completely detached, right? Like I think, so I'll give you sort of at a high level how I think about it and you can feel free to add or correct uh, or make fun of me. So, um, I mean, I think at a high level to value freedom, you at minimum have to have two kind of core convictions. One is that you are actually capable of running your own life and making the kinds of decisions that will steer you in the direction that you want to go. And then two is that you're worthy of happiness and like that you have the right to actually be satisfied and enjoy your life. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of opposing freedom, I think it's more complex. Um, but at minimum, there's at least two orientations. There's, you know, the kind of people who want to, you know, be guided or controlled, although I don't think they hold it that way. Um, and then the people who want to do the controlling. And I think there's a lot of underlying similarities there, but, uh, the, the, how do you think about uh, the relationship between kind of our psychological health or psychological states and what kinds of ideas we're attracted to or repelled from? Oh, I just wanted to say one word to say that it's not determined. So part of what I mean by that is I think a person could emotionally be very afraid of freedom or be emotionally very attracted to oh man, wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to work and I just got a universal handout and I could do whatever I wanted, but still say, well, no, let me think this through. Like they can, they can be rational even if emotionally they're inclined one way or another. Um, so that, that's what I was trying to indicate, but I don't think our psychology determines it. But how do you approach the connection, if any, between those mm -hmm. two fields? Yeah, so I think there's definitely something to what you're saying. I think there will be certain psychological draws to the content of one or another political view in terms of how confident you are that you'd be able to fend for yourself and to make your own choices and put food on the table without forced help in effect, right? Without having a safety blanket, without other people looking after you, whether they have chosen to or not. And as you mentioned, and I think really crucially, really fundamentally, your moral stance on whether you are your brother's keeper, right? Whether you owe something to others in society, whether or whether you're allowed and whether it is in fact your birthright to pursue your own happiness in your own way. So I definitely think both of those factors matter. And I think if more people were interested in doing that kind of research or even had that framework to work from, I think we'd probably see lots of correlations, you know, between 
how high someone is on self-worth and or self-efficacy, right? the two things that we're talking about, and their support for certain political views. But I think it's also really confounded the question of which substantive view is going to be more appealing to what psychological profiles is confounded by the fact that certain views are mainstream right now in certain communities and are associated with, I think largely whether it's by sociological accident or whether it's through complicated channels of intellectual history that I don't fully understand, but these intellectual views right now come as package deals, right? So you've got, I mean, right now we're seeing this really play out in our culture with this current pandemic where you can belong to one of two camps in effect, right? right. And the one camp is pro-freedom, anti-science, and anti-being an honest, decent person, seemingly, right? And so that's one choice that is put in front of you. If you're just kind of going about your life and casually trying to figure out where you fit, right? And then the other broad perspective and, and the school and the camp associated with it is one of wanting to be measured and scientific and evidence-based and let the government have all the power, right? Or at least all the important power, right? Let the government fix all the things that are broken that we can't entrust to private individuals to fix. And so because the culture is divided along these, I think, really weirdly <laughs> dichotomized lines, because I don't think those things inherently all go together, right? In fact, I think being pro-science and being pro-freedom should be one and the same. They should be part of one view. But right now, they're, they belong to opposite camps. And so people who are not putting all of their mental energy into trying to really figure out for themselves, like, what do I actually believe here? And really like start from first principles without any prior assumptions and, and try to work out like what's the best political system, which as we know, that's a really difficult and complicated project, right? People who don't specialize in this area, who are just kind of looking to experts or looking to people they trust, people close to them, to guide them, they're going to end up in one of these camps. And either way, they're screwed with respect to being freedom advocates, right? Because neither side really is advocating for freedom. Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you made this point um, because like the way I was laying it out, I think had too much the implication that there would be this direct correlation between certain kind of psychological qualities and the politics you choose. But part of what I think it happened, which you touched upon, I think eloquently is that, you know, people are, it's not that we've laid out pro-freedom principles and anti-freedom principles and people are choosing between those. They're right. primarily, unless they're very active minded and interested in this area, they're primarily choosing between two camps or two tribes. And those yeah. camps have mixtures of positives and mixtures of negatives. And then right depending on what kind of person you are, you can be attracted to a camp because of its positive qualities or because of its negative qualities. Right, and or so some mixture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, because, I mean, for instance, like I, it, it tends to be true in the circles that we run in and in the liberty movement, if you want to put it that way more broadly, 
um, that there seemed to be, at least there was certainly before 2016, more of an affinity with conservatives. And I think it's because we'll often speak in the same language more commonly, like they'll use the language of freedom uh, and liberty and be very, Mm -hmm. you know, paying homage to the founders. Um, But, you know, I think of like people that I really respect and particularly when they're younger and like, you know, these are people who would be passionate about science and passionate um, or even not just passionate about science, but like I was interviewing Mark Pellegrino and he was, you know, he became an environmentalist uh, almost just because it was like, well, I care about animals and respect them. A lot of the people I know are crummy. So there's, there's these kinds of, it's, you have to factor in that the choice that's offered to people is a really weird, yeah, unclean sort of choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it takes a ton of work and cognitive resources to untangle that false dichotomy and to realize, wait, I don't have to choose between these two camps. And in a way, people do have to, certainly when it comes to voting decisions, right? Literally, we have to pick someone from this party or someone from this party. And I think socially, when it comes to like the people you hang out with and the people in these days hanging out, mostly refers to like virtually who you spend time and engaging with on Twitter, right? And on Facebook. But as we know, there are echo chambers and there are these clusters that tend to form that then only watch certain news networks and only tend to discuss, you know, certain findings and and certain memes even that like circulate within these respective communities and have their own languages so it's actually really hard and alienating to try to forge your own path intellectually and reject the pressure to belong to one of these groups so yeah so that's really interesting i mean i i think that's a a valuable thing to have at the forefront of our mind that one thing that you would have to do before you even get to the stage of persuading somebody is helping them get that we're that the choice is not setting aside voting which you said but if we're thinking about what what do i want to see happen in the world uh, at a policy level and i think ultimately at a system level um to get that that's a choice among principles not amongst groups and that that the principles are everything has not necessarily been put on the table if all you're doing is reading the New York Times or watching Fox News. Right. And I think, indeed, I think this really comes back to that idea from motivational interviewing, from psychology, of meeting people where they're at. It's so important, especially in a context where nobody's really even that clear on what the alternatives are, right? I mean, motivational interviewing was originally designed to help people quit drinking, smoking, to get over an addiction where at least there's a general consensus, probably this isn't very good for you, especially at the point where you're so addicted that like you're spending all your money on this drug and you're not living your life and you've been alienated from your kids, you know, where there are actually lots of uncontroversial good reasons to quit. And still we've learned in psychology that there's a process that a person has to go through. There's, there are reasons why they're using And until you actually understand those reasons and help them think through in their own terms, you know, at their own pace, in terms of their own goals and values, like, what do I actually want? 
and not assume even that you know what the alternatives are for them, like either to be abstinent or to be a drug user, right? Like maybe there's some third alternative that's actually going to work better for them in the context of their life where they can still preserve their social you know, identity and where they can still gain some of the legitimate benefits of their substance of choice while still having their life back you know, and, and being able to make conscious decisions, right? It's that much more important to do that, to start where a person's at and not make prior assumptions. Oh, so you've chosen to be a liberal because, you know, you think the conservatives are bad. So let me tell you, or let me tell you why actually freedom is bad. And they're like, why is that even the question? Mm-hmm. What? I've never, I, I think freedom is great. That's why I want to advocate for children's, you know, freedom to be educated, right? Like they don't even mean the same thing by the word and much less have a motivation to argue with you about it and to consider that their view might somehow be missing something important, right? That there might be value in this other perspective. So it's just so, so crucial not to assume out of hand what the categories are, what matters to the person and why, what's going to motivate that particular person to move toward what we see as a pro-freedom position, right? But rather actually listen to them, figure out where they're at and then make your best case. Well, yeah. So then let's kind of unite these two points a little bit more, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. you talked about there's this whole methodology for change. And if I take it, the starting point is that, you know, if somebody's going to be motivated to change their fundamental ideas, there has to be some way in which they have an incentive, an internal incentive to do that. They, they, They have some desire to think through these issues or there's certain outcomes in the world that they want to see that they're not seeing and you can help see, Oh, well, it's like if, if we had a different set of policies. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some form it's, you know, meeting them where they are. Is there anything else that you could indicate sort of like what the journey might look like from there? I mean, I think part of the realization is just, there are going to be lots of different journeys, which I imagine this podcast will really, help concretize for us because I'm sure you're going to hear lots of very different stories about what brought people to these ideas and what made them like what hurt for each one. But I think probably one common denominator I imagine is that something hurts in the sense that people encounter either a clash within their own principles where they, for example, they both really value like, truth and evidence and science and they're trying to figure out like what is really true and on the other hand they they're noticing that sometimes that very drive is in some ways being used against them to get them to like buy into a policy that later ends up costing them you know or or ends up having a lot less evidence than they thought this is kind of abstruse because i'm imagining I'm working top down from, okay, where do I see contradictions and how might that, how might a person experience that? But I think like, even as I'm doing that, I'm realizing, I don't know that there's a real person like that. Like this is probably not how a person's going to experience it. And I am tempted to go back down to the observational level and actually see for a given individual, like, you know, what makes you interested in politics? Like if you are at all, and like, what are the causes that you're really passionate about? advocating for if you are you know and presumably we're thinking about certain people who are going to even encounter these questions in a way that motivates them to even 
like tune in to what we have to say, right? And that's not going to be a lot of people. But the people who are, first thinking about like, who are those people? And maybe they're the people who, because they've actually grown up across cultures in a certain way, I think that's probably a really common kind of trajectory where on one hand, they have really conservative parents. On the other hand, they go to college and they're getting all this really liberal, you know, really like social justice content. And then they're trying to reconcile that, right? So that creates that's, some cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. One of the most profound lessons I learned about the history of philosophy was just how much was dependent on the fact that you had, for the first time, really mixing of vastly different cultures. And mm-hmm. so for the first time, this there was yeah. a real live question about, well, wait, they believe completely, they worship different gods, they have different customs, different moral rules. Well, like we can either just cut, you know, say, well, they're heathens and, and, and enough with them or barbarians, or the thinkers will go well, like, but how do we know that we're right? And there's a real question here. And I, I, I think because as you were talking, I was thinking it is a little mysterious how passionate people some people do get about politics, um, given that we have so little influence on it, and that mm-hmm. aside from long-term things and massive dislocations like we're currently undergoing now with the response by the government to yeah. the COVID-19 crisis, it tends not to affect most of us on a day-to-day level. And so I, I do think it's an interesting question of why even people are devote so much time to thinking through these things and doing it. And, you know, I mean, I, I have certain reasons I've done it, but um, I think uh, one of the other lessons of this podcast is don't necessarily generalize from your own experience too much, yeah. particularly if you're an intellectual minority, because there Indeed. tends to be uh, very minority traits that are common amongst uh, people in that world. Um, yeah, and a lot of variability even yeah. within that minority group right i think that's probably a lesson to learn from inferential statistics and and human subjects research that the smaller the sample the more the the more noise you're going to get ironically that on the one hand like you'd expect more homogeneity in a smaller sample but i mean even just sociologically thinking about what brings somebody to a weird non-mainstream movement or community just the fact that it's outside the mainstream eliminates most people who just like aren't going to hear about it. They're not going to be that. They're going to think it's fringe and weird. And so who are the people who are drawn to something that's fringe? It's going to be a mix of people who already see themselves as being fringe and weird and just like to be anti-establishment. People who something about the substance, about the principles was so appealing to them that they were willing to kind of push back on you know, the kind of mainstream pressure to the people who were going to think that they were weird for listening to these podcasts or for like reading this publication that's considered to be like, this is basically Scientology, which we sometimes get about objectivist forums, right? And here's like, what? This is automatically gets associated with a lot of bad stuff, right? And so, so it's going to be a really weird mix of people. And we're thinking about like, how do we move more people in a direction of thinking in a very non-mainstream way. Because right now it's extremely non-mainstream, it's counter-cultural, unfortunately, to be thoughtfully pro-freedom in the way that I think we're talking about. 
And so inherently you've got this problem that there's not going to be like a normal cookie cutter, like representative path, right? Because these are people who aren't following the normal cookie cutter representative path that we understand really well. Yeah. So I find that, I think that's a good, like a good mental set to have is so like, you know, we, you want to be really connected to a person's own, uh, you know, the problems they see in their own view or the things that are fascinating to them. And, and part of that is even why is the whole realm of interest to, to them? Uh, I think it's, if any listener wants to uh, make the argument that you can just go and like get people interested from zero. Um, if you can, if you can show me that works, that would be amazing. And I will. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Study. You can become the new host of the show. Um <laughs> But, and also uh, take my job because I feel like you would do it better <laughs> at that point because you would just convince anybody. Yeah, so <laughs> I think that's a really good foundation. I, I, I'm almost certainly want to do this again because I think there's just an infinite well to dive into. I mean, a, a couple things though I did want to cover. So one is just if, if somebody was interested just in this approach generally and then thinking in their own lives, whether they want to apply it to personal issues or or political issues, what, where would they, a good place for them to start looking? Mm -hmm. So in terms of the approach to self-change and yeah. motivation. Yeah. So I think looking up motivational interviewing, um, that's a term that if you Google it, you'll find tons of material. If you are, I, I think another perspective in psychology that has informed a lot of my thinking on this is something called self-determination theory, which is a motivational theory. It's a framework for thinking about people's psychological needs and the ways in which the the different ways that somebody can be motivated and why those ways are more or less effective um, from the perspective of differing levels of autonomy so that whether you are doing whatever it is you're, whether you're going to the gym because you feel guilty when you don't and be, or and or because someone is yelling at you and pressure you and so you just want to get them off your back and so you go work out which those would be at the less autonomous more external locus of causality end of the spectrum as they call it versus because you actually see reasons for going to the gym in terms of things that you want in terms of your own goals and values like you know well i really want to be in shape for my wedding or for this event or I, it's important for my health. I want to be able to like lift up my kids in 10 years when I'm elderly, but, or, or my grandkids or whatever the case may be. Like you can name at least some reasons for yourself while you're going, or you have so integrated the different reasons into your own value framework and into your soul that you don't even have to ask the question. It's just really obvious to you that it's the thing you want to do you know, on a given day. So they, characterize those different levels of motivation one could have and and there's a lot of research within that framework on how do people move along that continuum you know and how do you promote autonomy in a way that actually helps people make better decisions and and be more thoughtful and and stick to their goals once they've set them so yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's a fascinating field because at yeah, one level it just seems paradoxical. Like my field is premised on the fact that people are autonomous and now I'm going to like, you know, here's how I'm going to help make them autonomous or something like huh. it's, 
and it's not exactly paradoxical, but it's just, it's, it's certainly challenging because you really have to come to terms. I think part of what I get talking to you and other people in the field is like, you really have to come to and talking to parents, other parents for that uh, matter, taking seriously mm-hmm. that people are autonomous, that they have free will and that you can't control them. Like it's just, it is, um, it is a very deep truth that I think we don't keep at the forefront of our mind in so many areas of life, including persuasion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, and I think, I mean, what's really interesting, and I think in itself a, a study in the challenge that you're trying to address is that psychologists, clinical psychologists especially, are really well attuned to the need for autonomy to the need to respect a patient's autonomy. We all learn about motivational interviewing and about client-centered approaches and humanistic therapy as a foundation for a lot of the other work we do. And psychologists really understand like you can't force somebody to change, right? You've got to, all the things that we've been saying, but almost to the last, they are of a liberal persuasion when it comes to their politics. And they're very much in favor of universal healthcare and more controls it, uh, with respect to climate change and all these things that you and I think are undercutting people's autonomy. And it's not that easy to create the dissonance even for that. Yeah, and that's something mm-hmm. I've sometimes I've toyed with. I haven't, because it hasn't been one of my main areas of focus to date. I haven't like tried really hard to figure out how to persuade them. So I'm excited to learn from your podcast, but only a few times have I actually experienced being able to create the cognitive dissonance of, okay, so I, I don't actually think you can really force somebody to do something in a way that's good for them. And is it actually going to help them you know, thrive? And I think we should force people to use less you know, fuel and to get in health insurance and to engage in all these behaviors we think are healthy and good and sometimes not even for them, but for other people. And we need to use all this like messaging to get people to socially distance for the sake of other, for the sake of others, because clearly they're not going to do it for themselves. I think the key and the challenge is creating the kind of cognitive dissonance where someone realizes the thing I really want, the thing I value, the thing I care about is inconsistent with what I'm currently advocating, with what I'm currently espousing, like in a way that's really real to them. And where I've seen people change their worldviews, especially in the realm of religion, I've seen it probably the most, it's been through that kind of means where people realize that like, okay, so it's either being able to like love this person and be with them or being true to my religion. And something is just really wrong with the fact that I'm being put into this, you know, conflict, like where it really gets personal. So yeah, that's I the think challenge. that's yeah, it is a big challenge because I think one of the difficulties is um, you don't pay a high cost for being wrong about politics. A culture or society pays a huge cost, an enormous cost. But you, as in terms in your own mind, and yet you can also pay a high personal cost for being rational, because if you come to views that put you outside yeah. of your peer group in the mainstream. Um, I mean, you know, you say your field is very left-wing. I spoke to Mark Pellegrino, who's in Hollywood. Um, My wife's interested in children's books, which is a very 
left-leaning field um, sure. and you pay a real price. I mean, I was associated with my ideas publicly before I knew any better. So that ship sailed <laughs> long ago, but um, yeah, I think it's, I think it makes it a, a very interesting uh, challenge to motivate. And I think we've hit on that in some various ways about how to start thinking about, well, how would you motivate somebody given the unique nature of politics that it's connected to our moral views in a way. And so it's profoundly has a, pr a profoundly personal meaning to the people who see it that way. Um, but it's not necessarily directly connected to our day-to-day -day action and the day-to-day -day rewards and punishments of life. And so yeah. uh, I, it's, I mean, there's so much I want to explore, but I did before we end, I was so excited. I forget, maybe it's been six months to see you started blogging mm -hmm. um, and, and writing about uh, some issues with your practice, some issues just about the culture in general. And given that we're talking about motivation to delve into the realm of ideas, um, mm -hmm. A, where can people find it? But B, just what led you to want to do this? Because I think um, there's there's something a little daring about you know, coming out and uh, having the ideas that you do, I think you write about them in a very accessible way, but it's still, you, you know, you, you don't necessarily have cookie cutter, you know, milk toast views about things. <laughs> um, what motivated you to do it? And what, what are you aiming to achieve from that? That's a good question. Um, so, so I wrote a little bit about what motivated me in the first blog post, which I titled all about, sorry, <laughs> all for Alice. And Alice is my newborn, now not so newborn daughter. She's Yay. now three months old. We're, we're now in month increments instead of week increments, which is crazy in itself. But this is something that I've wanted to do that's been in the back of my mind as a, a kind of impact that I would like to have and that I've either been too busy for or scared for all the reasons you're saying or just felt like, well, it's gonna distract me from the work of writing peer-reviewed journal articles that are gonna to count toward tenure because I'm also you know, on the academic track, or it's gonna alienate my colleagues. And having Alice, sorry, can we pause? For <laughs> sorry, because yeah. as I was talking about Alice, Alice came home. Oh no, bring her in. Like she she needs to have her first uh, taste of fame. Well, oh, she's had a few tastes already. <laughs> All right, once again, this time we got uh, interrupted not by technical difficulties, but by adorable babies that I got to see and none of you get to see uh, on this show. Sorry. So thanks. Unless she, she wakes up. Yeah, unless then, she wakes up, in which case then it's we, fair will, game. we will mm -hmm. welcome her. Um, but you were starting to explain sort of how the very person we're talking about became an impetus to overcome, you know, all these reasons that you always had not to kind of get your ideas out there to the world. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to continue with that story. Yeah. So I think part of it was just that having a child really puts you in contact with like, what kind of world do I want to live in? And do I want her to live in? Like suddenly it's not, in a sense, just about me, and it's not just about like my immediate comforts or or conveniences, but it's about this life I've brought into the world, and it's about what I want for her, and even after I die, like what kind of world am I building and am I working toward? 
And so I think it has a way of focusing and clarifying our vision and really putting us in touch with our own values and ideals in a way that few other things can. And before having Alice, I'd seen this in even like some of the veterans I've worked with who have PTSD and have been through really horrible experiences. And the ones who had kids were the ones I was more easily able to, to get through to in terms of making big changes in their lives. And it was because they wanted to do better for their kids and they wanted to be their best selves for their kids. And I very much experienced something similar. It's also in some ways that are more idiosyncratic to me, the very idea and not just idea, but like the very real task of raising this little human who at first is completely helpless and almost every ounce of mental energy at first, you know, and many ounces <laughs> going forward are devoted to trying to figure out like, how do I give her her best start? How do I help her to grow into and increasingly, oh, here she comes, here she comes. All the right. lady of the hour, the star of the show, the oh. very subject of our Hello. discourse. So she's already well on her way to gaining increased she, autonomy. Is she still looking at daddy? She is looking concernedly at daddy for the moment. What have you brought me to? So, so this little creature here, who resembles a human more and more each day, she just really put me in contact with the nurturance of a human soul, with what I already think about every day and what I commit so much of my life to doing, but in this very real, immediate, and adorable way, you know, that I'm constantly trying to, like, figure out, okay, what's, like, the next step in her development where I can kind of encourage her forward and and where I can be attuned to her preferences as they're forming and really like notice and and, and catch the little subtle smiles of delight at something that she's experiencing for the first time like splashing around in the bath and then really build on that like give her more time and splash her back and allow her to really like develop that preference and and encourage her to communicate with me when she likes something or when she dislikes something because she knows that that's going to be taken seriously and you know like that it's going to be valued so that she can start to really value her own choices and value her own judgment and so like even from infancy you know i've been thinking about this every day when i'm not too exhausted to think and i think what that did for me in terms of the blog was it again created that cognitive dissonance of okay so what i care about most in the world is nurturing this kind of human growth and where can i have the most impact how do i actually promote that value on the widest scale and it's not at least certainly not exclusively going to happen by writing peer reviewed articles that are read by one or two of my peers mostly just looking at the abstract you know so that they know like the the p-value that I reported, right? it's going to come from, I have things to say that I think are going to fill in gaps for people that I think are going to create both the kind of dissonance and the kinds of affordances for thinking 
from a different perspective that I think people need in order to grow and to challenge the status quo. And if not now, when, if not me, who, <laughs> you know, like I think right. it just really kind of brought me face to face no, with my values. Like I said, I'm really happy you did it. When we, we went offline for a second, we, you were connecting this uh, or saying something that can, reminded me of this just about, you know, the relationship, you know, of, uh, well, I'm, I don't want to mischaracterize what you're saying. So, um, but just also, you know, interacting with other academics and yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're right. So, yeah. So I think the other aspect of it, the more academic facing aspect of my motivation is that one of the ways that I've noticed I get the most traction. Oh, good. Burp. That was really impressive, sweetie. And back, back on task. <laughs> one of, I think the most effective means of persuasion that I found is just being a decent person, being someone who is not kooky, who listens and you know respects her colleagues, and and then when my colleagues discover, oh, like she has done talks for this institute, this Ayn Rand Institute, and she, even though she's adamantly anti-Trump, she's also like anti-universal health care and that's weird and what's up with that and that in and of itself creates a kind of dissonance and a kind of opening in people's minds to rethink some of their assumptions and the goal there for me it's not to turn them all into objectivists or into liberty advocates but it's to create a friendlier more receptive social environment you know to kind of lay the groundwork for more people to be open and willing to listen even to a perspective that they might otherwise just dismiss as absurd so that over time the people who are already on a trajectory of like searching for this stuff they're going to have an easier time finding it and they're going to have an easier time expressing it without fearing you know, social reprisal and ostracism right and and the culture is going to become increasingly friendlier yeah, and I think it goes to the point of breaking the kind of um, monopoly of left and right thinking. You know, you're, yeah. you're breaking it in, in a number of ways. Number one, you're just letting them know there's an intellectual position that's different, but it's like nobody's going to be able to portray you as anti-science, right? Like, exactly, uh, exactly. So yeah, so yeah. just being the person, like in your person embodying a package that's very different from what they assume the packages to be, right? Like, it's just, it's neither this nor this, or, you know, it's not at all what I would assume a, an anti-welfare person, you know, to look like and to be like, like she's really empathic and compassionate, and she seems to think that this is what's actually gonna be best for people versus being this heartless, thoughtless, you know. Right. Trumpy type. Definitely. Oh, well, we almost committed a great sin. So how can people actually read the blog, Gina? Oh, thank you. you. So you, you, have to get, you have to get better at promoting. I really do. So it's easy. You just go to ginagorlin.com slash blog. That's G-E-N-A-G-O-R-L-I-N. Yes, thank for, you. For those who are not uh, okay. not reading the show notes. Indeed. 
Well, this was awesome. And uh, I really hope we can do it again. Cause I mean, I, I certainly learned a number of things, but I think we more just raised a lot of interesting questions and it'll be interesting to, to come back to some of these points, you know, 20, 30 interviews down the road and, and yeah. uh, the kind of insights that come from them. But I wish you the best. I wish hey. the little one, the best, the whole family, the best. And we will talk soon. Thank <laughs> you.